You are listening to the Parkview Church Podcast. To learn more about Parkview Church, including our gathering times in Palm Coast, Florida, visit us online at parkviewlife.com. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to what may be the greatest psalm of the 150 psalms, and it just so happens to be the neighbor of the most well-known psalm. So I want you to go to Psalm 22, which I believe may be the greatest psalm. Psalm 22, today we begin a series that I trust will be um, high impact and uh, high influence in your life and will be an encouragement to you uh, in your journey of life and particularly make a big difference in your relationships, whether it be at home, at work, with family, in the community, with a boss, with a coworker. We're going to talk about um, things that trigger us. So our series is entitled Triggered. Why do we tend to overreact? And then what can we do about those overreactions? And so we felt like coming out of Easter, if we could just kind of come alongside of you in a very practical way to apply Scripture to uh, what is maybe happening, not just in your personal life, but in your faith life. Because truth of the matter is, what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to have like this closet that you consider the spiritual part of your life that you know you open up every Sunday or every Saturday night but rather that you would see how the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ should be a part of every room in your house and every area of your life should have a spiritual dimension and be led by a spirit through a spiritual dimension and so Uh, The Bible is extremely applicable, uh, not just for us to go to church on the weekend, but as we live our life uh, day to day. And so I want to talk to you about what it looks like to be triggered. It was about five years ago, almost exactly, that I was the passenger in one of those John Deere utility vehicles. And um, at that time, our son, Seth, was the number one runner at Flagler Palm Coast High School uh, as a 10th grader on the uh, cross-country team. And this w- was race day. But this wasn't any race day. This was the biggest race day. And the reason it was so big was not because the number of teams involved in the race, which if you're familiar with cross-country, it's not uncommon for there to be seven, eight, ten teams running in a race. But this race day was on the home field. It was being run at the Flagler County Fairgrounds, which was the home course of FPC. And not only was it being run on their home field, it was a match race. It was a dual head-to-head two teams and only two teams. And what made it such a big deal was it was the crosstown rivalry. So it was just Matanzas High School and Flagler Palm Coast High School in the race. The coach of the cross country team was so kind because he knew that Seth would be near the front of the pack. And so he said to me, hey, I'm gonna lead the pace car. Would you like to ride and watch Seth run the race? I was thrilled. I thought it was awful generous. I was like, yeah, absolutely. 
So the coach, one of the coaches, the assistant coach, he was driving. I was in the passenger seat. And then there was another boy in the back bed of this utility vehicle. So he was facing the runners. And we were trying to keep an eye on the path and weaving through the woods and staying on the trail and staying just ahead of the runners while turning around and watching it as much as we could as well. And so very early on in the race, there was Seth right at the front. He was the number one runner for FPC, and the number one runner for Matanzas was right by his side. And then there was another boy who uh, started well and was kind of in the mix there, the three of them. What I noticed early on in the race is that um, it was intense. You're like, cross-country racing, intense? Yeah, it was a pretty big deal, big race, huge in these kids' minds. And uh, the intensity was showing because they started kind of bumping each other. And uh, every once in a while, you saw an elbow kind of nudge the other one, you know. And they're, they're I mean, they're, they're side by side uh, on top of each other. And so they're nudging each other, jockeying for position, running hard through the woods. And it's kind of weaving now its way back through the woods. And we're watching the trail and watching them. And I grew concerned um, about the, the, the energy that was kind of being, you know, emitted from both uh, parties. And so, but I, you know, whatever. And so I'm watching, and I, and, I, and I look forward to keeping an eye on the trail. And then and I turn back around. As I turn back around, Seth is going face down. And he face plants in the dirt. And he is out cold. And I'm like, whoa, stop, stop. The boy that was in the back trailer of the John Deere, who, by the way, actually got baptized here last weekend. So that's kind of a cool story five years later. And so this boy jumps out. He goes back. He saw what happened. I'm piecing it together as I jump out. The number one runner at Matanzas High School had gotten so frustrated with the race and his losing position that he literally cold cocked Seth in the, in, the, in the jaw and knocked him out. And Seth is spread eagle on the ground, knocked out. And the other boy runs over, tries to grab him. In the meantime, I want you to know, if I had done to that other boy what I wanted to do in my mind in that moment, I would not be the pastor of Parkview today. <laughs> I am telling you, the Lord saved me and prevented me from being able to pull off what I wanted to pull off in that moment. And so this boy gets Seth up, kind of revives him, and Seth is so crazy, he just takes off running again once he comes to. He just takes off running, his chin's busted open, he just takes off running, and I'm like, oh no, he's hitting another zone, another level. So now I get out of the mule, I cut across the course because I got to get to the finish line. So I get to the finish line ahead of the boys, and sure enough, here they come, and they are jawing, they are yelling, they're on each other, and I just said to Seth, get in the car and he's like well, I, I, can't. I said shut your mouth get in the car he's like what dad blah, blah. I said get in the car I said I don't care about awards I don't care about motivational speeches I don't care about fruit snacks and juice packs get in the car so he gets in the car and we drive off the race hasn't been over for like 45 seconds we're leaving the parking lot he's like dad I, I said I know bud just calm down I'm trying to calm down, you calm down. It's about five minutes later, the phone rings. I look at it, it's the coach. 
I said, hello? He said, hey, pastor. He said, um, man, I'm so sorry about what happened. He said, listen, I need you to come back. I said, oh. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, you don't want me back there. I left for a reason. He said, no, no. He said, the kid's sorry. Um, you know, his dad's sorry. Like, they, they want to apologize. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's over. I just need, I need to calm down. You don't need me there. He's like, no, no, pastor, please, please come back and, and, and bring Seth. But we got to work this out, you know, and all that. I'm like, I don't think it's a good idea. He's like, no, no, come back. So against my better judgment, I turn around and I go back. And the kid gives one of those like 5% apologies. And then I discovered that it's not his dad there with him, but it's his granddad. His grandfather was raising him. And the grandfather's like, yeah, you know, when I was a kid, we did stupid stuff too. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I know I want to knock your grandson out. I'm going to knock you out. Because initially I thought I was going to be in the paper for knocking a kid out. Pastor at Parkview knocks out Matanzas Runner. Now it's going to read, Pastor at Parkview knocks out Matanzas Runner, dot, 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 and his grandpa. I was like, I mean, again, I'm like, let's, Seth, just get in the car. We just need to go. All of us find ourselves in situations where we get triggered. Sometimes we're triggered because of our children. Sometimes we get triggered as a result of things that happened in our childhood. There are a lot of different reasons that we can get triggered. Well, what is what is it may be a new term triggered but it's not a new reaction so triggered is this it's an emotional reaction that is considered to be excessive by others usually because they don't know the background of the cause of the response now the goal of this series is not to say not the goal of this series is not to make excuses for your emotional overreaction that's not the goal of this series. But I do believe the goal of the series is twofold. Number one, to help you see that you're not alone. And number two, to be able to get a glimpse of what God can do when you surrender those triggered moments to him. That you're not alone, and yet God can use those things when you surrender them to him, even your triggered moments. I love the fact that we're coming out of Easter because what I want you to see today is that because of the resurrection, everything is resurrectable. Because of the power that Christ had over death, hell, and the grave, and because of the resurrection, anything and everything and all things are resurrectable. So even the moments that we might describe or define as less than stellar moments in our life, moments that we're not exactly proud of, moments that we didn't handle really well, even those moments are redeemable. Even those moments are indeed resurrectable. In fact, I believe that God wants you to know you like he knows you so that he can use you far beyond what you ever believed was possible. What would it be like if you could get a little bit of a glimpse in knowing yourself like God knows you and then being able to see that he can use you in ways that are far beyond what you would have believed possible? There's an old song. I'm trying to think of the words off the top of my head. He's still working on me. See, he, he made the, the sun and the moon, Jupiter and Mars. It took just a week to make the sun, the moon, the Jupiter and Mars, something like that. But he's still working on me. I remember uh, a few years ago when we were doing a, uh, 
one of our uh, food distributions during the pandemic. A, a guy pulled through in his car, and we were giving away literally a trunk load of food to people that came, and he came through the, the, the experience that day, and we got to chat, and he was in, had the window rolled down, we got to chat, and I just asked him how he was doing, and I'll never forget what he said. In fact, it's so funny, I use it from time to time. Just last weekend, I said it to somebody right, right out here in the side lobby. Somebody said to me, how you doing? And I just stole his line. This is what he said to me that day, and it was so helpful. He said, Pastor, he said, I'm blessed, highly favored, and still under construction. <laughs> I said, say that again. He said, I'm blessed, highly favored, and still under construction. And I thought, man, that is a wonderful description of the Christian life. Blessed, highly favored, and still under construction. And so that we are still a work in progress. And yes, the Lord made the sun, the moon, the stars, Jupiter, and Mars in a week. But he is still working on you, and he is still working on me. In fact, one of the things that I have encountered in my own walk with God is how there are always areas of inconsistency that need to be addressed. I have not arrived, my friend. Christianity is not a destination. It is a journey. And we are on this journey together and God is still working in us, shaping us, molding us and making us to be the person that he wants to be. And there's always areas of inconsistency in your life and my life that I need to work on. So when I consider this series triggers, what I'm saying is, Greg, don't run from your triggers. Don't hide from your triggers. Don't ignore your triggers. Don't bury your triggers. But rather, let God unearth them. Let God pull back the layers, Greg. Let God expose what's triggering you. Let God reveal to you the areas of your life right now where you need to bring spiritual maturity, where you need to bring the power of the gospel, where you need to bring the resurrection of Jesus and let him redeem and resurrect those things that have caused you to be triggered and caused you to be tripped up in your life. So I want the Lord to show me why I'm responding the way I'm responding and what he wants to do with that. So in this series, what I believe will happen is there's going to be some housekeeping. There's going to need to be some heavy lifting. In fact, my hope and my prayer is, is that this series will foster conversations with the people around you who have watched you be triggered, who have been on the receiving end of your triggered and tripped up moments. So maybe there'll be some conversations that take place between a husband and wife. And maybe those conversations are going to need to involve a third party or even a counselor. Maybe there's conversations with a student that needs to happen. And we're happy to provide one of our student pastors, one of our pastors, to step in and try and help you have conversations. Because if we're, if we're honest and if we're transparent and if we're vulnerable about, about these things, it's going to require some housekeeping. What I don't want you to do is hear the series and gain all the information and then make zero application. Because information without application is an abomination. There's no need for us to gain more information unless we're going to apply it. And so my hope and prayer is that you'll begin to look deep and see what are some of the things that are triggering you. Maybe, maybe you've got abandonment issues. Maybe you've got uh, financial insecurity. Maybe you've had the loss of a loved one. Maybe you've been journeying through a season of de uh, depression. Maybe you've had a series of unrealized uh, ambitions. Uh, whatever the case may be, but you find yourself being triggered. So today, we're going to go to 
what I believe is maybe the greatest psalm. First of all, you have to know that David's one of my favorite writers. I've said this many times. If David were alive today, he'd make a great country music artist. (laughs) Because he just tells it his story i mean it's right there you know and 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 he just is authentic about who he is and he and he's just you know and kind of like a country music song you know how they how they tell their story i don't know if you've heard what happens when you play a country music song in reverse you get your dog back and your car back and your wife back you yeah so so david (laughs) that one's not even in my notes um David just is, he just shares his story. And, and what you'll find, and I, I can relate to David in this way, David doesn't have a whole lot of middle ground. I don't know if anybody's like that in here. David didn't have a whole lot of middle ground. David is either like at the pinnacle or the pit. And I mean, he's, that, my life tends to be that way. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I can live life in extremes. I'm sure you're surprised. And so Psalm, Psalm 22 is known as um, well, I don't want to give it away. Let's just jump into verse number one and uh, let's see where, how David's doing, all right? I think verse one sets the tone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, all day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You are holy and enthroned on the praise of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. (laughs) And not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They run their mouth at me. They wag their heads. What in the world is going on here? We're actually not really sure. He is clearly feeling the weight of something that he's trying to put to words that not only probably could his audience not understand what he was saying, I'm not even sure that David understood what, is, what he was saying. Here's what I see out of this text. You don't have to know what triggered you to know that you've been triggered. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, why did I just do that? Why did I just respond that way? Why was there such a reaction? Why why was it so heightened? Where was all the energy? What was that about? And sometimes I don't even know why I respond the way that I respond. But I don't have to know why I was triggered to know I was triggered. Now this is not an excuse to overreact. Nor is this an excuse not to surrender the overreaction to God. But clearly what I think we can see today is that God knows why we respond the way we respond, even when we don't know why we respond the way we respond. Aren't you thankful to know that the Lord is well aware of what's going on in your heart and in your soul? You may be lost, but God is not. 
God is working in you and he's trying to work through you and he's trying to help you reach a new point of your discipleship that heretofore you have not been able to attain. And so God will allow things to happen in your life. He will allow responses and reactions to happen so that you can step back and have a moment and say, whoa, that's not, that doesn't align. That's not healthy. That's not good. That doesn't uh, uh, run parallel or synonymous with the gospel that I preach and I proclaim with my life. So I've got to change that i've got to fix that i've got to address that and while you may not know what's going on the lord does and the lord is at work in your life and so it could literally like come your trigger could come out of nowhere where you don't even know why you're being triggered so why did david write this psalm i mean did somebody reject him that day why did he write this psalm? Was it regrets around decisions he made in yesteryears that brought about heavy consequences? Was that why? Was it just a culmination of a wave of guilt that had rested upon his soul that day that he felt like all of a sudden God had abandoned him? Because a lot of times when we have these overreactions, we don't just feel like other people have hurt us, but we feel like God's hurt us. Why, God, why are you allowing? God, why are you doing? God, why are you? We're not sure. Maybe David had gone to Bathsheba and she just couldn't handle one more weighty conversation. And so he felt this, you know, you know upon him heavily. And so he just decides to throw a pen to it. But whatever the reason for how he got here, my man is in a tailspin. And the primary triggers going on in David as he writes this is he feels alone and he feels isolated. He's a popular guy. So I would assume there were plenty of people around. But you know what it's like to be in a room full of people and feel all alone in that room to feel isolated and to feel alone you know and i and i get it like if you were to evaluate david's life you would probably be like why does he feel isolated and why does he feel alone like david's got everything a man could ever want which by the way is pretty much how we always evaluate other people like oh they got why would they have any problems i mean i should have problems but they shouldn't have any problems they got everything i mean look at the house they live in the car they drive the job they got the spouse they got the kids they got the clothes they wear i mean like they got it all together hey let me just tell you something nobody's got it all together and let me tell you something about the people that look like they do their breath stinks <laughs> just so you know Because we're, when, what, a lot of times what promotes these overreactions is we feel like God's better to everybody else, but he's not fair to me. And I get it, if you were to look at David, you're like, my man is popular. Like, doesn't he have a star named after him? Doesn't he have like a city named after him? Like, didn't he have a lot of influence? Didn't he become king? Didn't he have a lot of money? Didn't he live in a palace? Sure, David had those things, but what are some of the other things we know about David? You know how I would describe David, part of David's life? I think you'll, you'll, you, can, you can resonate with this terminology. David was the runt of the litter. So Samuel comes to Jesse, he's like, hey, 
God gave me a word one of your boys is going to be king and so just bring your boys before me so I can figure out which one's going to be king and I'm going to anoint them today Jesse's like all right man that's awesome one of my kids is going to be king and so they Jesse starts at the oldest nope not him next one nope not him next one nope not him nope not him nope not him go all the way through the boys and Samuel's like well God didn't speak to me any of them don't don't do you have any more sons well not really why don't we go through them again like start at the top and let's work our way down and let's see if it's one of these boys you're like yeah but I've already done that Samuel said like don't you have one don't you have any other sons well well I mean technically yes there's there's one left well where is he at watching sheep somewhere we we sent him out a few days ago not really sure where he's at right now um well don't you think you could you need to bring him like that might no 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 no. you uh, it's not him it might be one of the other ones but it's not him now I don't know how your dad talked about you when you were a kid but I'm just feeling like if David only knew how Jesse felt in that moment like my man was the runt of the litter and uh, sure enough you know he ends up becoming uh, anointed king but but by the way even though he was anointed king David was about to become king but not yet you talk about having been put on pause and in the patient zone oh and then in the meantime to be pursued and persecuted by Saul who was king of Israel and all of that that ensued how about the consequences later in life of his own sinful choices how about the intense struggle with his son Absalom I mean I know that he looked all put together but if you really study the 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 story of David David was a lot like you and he's a lot like me my man had real struggles there were things that broke his heart like things that break your heart he had family situations he had employment situations he had sinful choices he had difficult decisions that he had to make so all these things could have been and any of these things could have been what came together as a perfect storm as he as he wrote the words to psalm 22 but what you're about to see in david's life and what i want you to see in your life is that god has a way of redeeming your triggered moments while we don't know what triggered psalm 22 we do know that it was an overreaction you say why do you know psalm 22 is an overreaction because a number of the things that david said happened to him actually didn't actually happen when things are going bad don't you seem to make the story a little worse than it actually is do you have a tendency to exaggerate the problems of your life I've had pastors through the years, obviously, just kind of call me and, and say, hey, you've gone through something. Can, I just need you to listen, just need your help. And, and I, I use this regularly with them. And because and, and they'll call during a time of struggle, and, and I'll say regularly to pastors, I say, listen, here's what I want you to understand. In your ministry, things are really never as good as they seem. But they're also not as bad as they seem. Reality lies typically somewhere in the middle. And so we have this tendency to over-exaggerate, to over-inflate, to over-embellish the story. David wrote this. He's, he's, he's isolated. He's, he's, he's desperate. He's alone. And, and he's just like, man, all these things that happened. And actually, some of them really didn't even happen. He's like, God, but you've abandoned me. 
I mean, listen to Deuteronomy chapter number uh, 31 and and verse number 6. And I want you to take this this verse to heart. Verse number 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not say not. He will not leave you or forsake you. What are you going through today? You're not going through it alone. He will never leave you or forsake you. Now, the timing of our being here in Psalm 22, um, to me, is, is um, profound. We find ourselves here in Psalm 22, obviously the weekend after Easter. And what I want you to know is, for the last 2,000 years plus, theologians have looked inquisitively into Christ's fifth saying on the cross. Jesus spoke seven times on the cross. Six of the sayings of Christ we can put kind of what I would call in a neat orderly fashion. But the fifth time that Jesus spoke on the cross for some 2,000 years, theologians have looked inquisitively into this statement because it appears that there may be a cosmic schism between the eternal triune Godhead. And this psalm actually will help us see our way through what was taking place on the cross of Calvary. Now, in that moment when Christ speaks for the fifth time and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Christ has bore the full weight on his shoulders of the sin of the world. And God the Father in His holiness cannot look upon His Son upon where the sin is being laid. And Jesus feels the burden of every ounce of that moment. But the Scripture tells us that the Father never leaves us nor forsakes us. Now I want to remind you today that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers in Scripture are not inspired. If the chapter numbers and the verses were inspired, there would be about 1,500 years of non-inspired text. Because it wasn't till maybe some 600 years ago now, 500 plus years ago, where uh, inserts were made of chapters and verses throughout the pages of the Bible. Simply put there to help us organize the way things are laid out and structured to give us something to kind of sink our teeth into. So what I want you to know is that prior to 500 years ago, these were just a list of songs that were not necessarily numbered. They were just songs. They were psalms of poetry or songs of poetry. And here was what Jesus was saying on the cross at the fifth saying. His Jewish audience just heard him say, if you would, Psalm 22. It wasn't numbered. 
but it was the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how David, in his aloneness and his isolation and in his desperation, began his psalm. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, that was the fifth saying of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. David, in his desperation, said this centuries before the Messiah would come. So even our darkest moments are indeed redeemable. Look with me down to verse 14 of Psalm 22. Verse 14 now this is David now okay let, all right, let me give you a little backstory. I didn't tell you this this psalm is known as the psalm of the cross this psalm is known as a messianic psalm of the 150 psalms there's a number of them that are messianic which simply means these psalms are not only songs for today they're prophecies for tomorrow and when the Messiah comes, when there is one who appears and says to you, I am the Messiah, in order to make sure he's not some fruitcake, just making up a story, you'll have some reference points to go back and check off. Does he meet this prophecy and this prophecy and this prophecy? There are over 300 prophecies given in the Old Testament about the Messiah who would come. And by the way, if one man would fulfill eight of the prophecies of the over 300, one man fulfilling eight is a mathematical impossibility. So this will be supernatural if the guy that comes on the scene meets over 300 prophecies. So this is a messianic prophecy. This is one who foretold of the Messiah to come. And so David was not even aware that this moment of, uh, of being triggered and overreacting is actually a very resurrectable and redeemable moment in the life of the Messiah. Okay, I could, I could stop and keep talking. Let's go to verse 14. Now remember, he's writing about him, but he's not writing about him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. We don't even believe that any of that actually happened to David. He was just overreacting in the moment. But God was using that overreaction to actually foretell of the Messiah who would come some five centuries later. David said, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Friend, David never was crucified. And by the way, crucifixion was 450 years away from being invented. How does a man write about something that's not even been invented yet? Much less when crucifixion would happen, the majority of people that were crucified were strapped to the cross. The worst of the worst were, were, had their hands and feet pierced. 
And so here David is writing something 450 years before it was ever even instituted and then talks about it from the worst to the worst of his hands and his feet being nailed and pierced. Then he says, I count all my bones. I count all my bones. That's, David, that's David's way of saying, none of, my bro- none of my bones are broken. Wow. Think about this. When somebody was crucified on a cross, it typically would take days for them to die of fatigue, exhaustion, and suffocation. They would be on a cross for days. One problem, though, that is presented during Holy Week, Jewish law says on the day of Passover, nobody can be on a cross. Most theologians believe that both thieves on either side of Christ had their legs broken in order to be able to die so that they were not alive during Passover on the cross. Because of the intense pain and anguish and suffering and the brutality placed upon Christ, they did not need to break his legs because they only lived six hours instead of the normal span of days. John 10 and 18, he had prophesied himself Nobody takes my life from me. I will lay it down. David said here in prophetic fashion that when the Messiah comes, they they won't have to to break his legs. Then, then, Then thirdly, he says in the text, in verse number 18, they divide my garments among them which, by the way, was the response to Christ's sixth saying on the cross that when he saw the soldiers dividing his garments, kind of gambling for them, he said, Father, forgive them, for they, they don't know what they're doing. David's garments were never gambled over. David didn't die a torturous death on a cross. To our knowledge, there wasn't a point in time where David's bones were on the verge of breaking or maybe would have thought broken but but no that no this is all in reference to the redeemer who would come so so what's the point of all this greg what's the point of psalm 22 here here's summary god uses dark lonely unbearable pain of his child david and the over-emotional reaction to that condition, more than 500 years before the coming of Christ, to write one of the most descriptive, graphic, and accurate prophecies of the Messiah that Christ would ever fulfill. Who knows what God can do with your hurt and your pain? Who knows how God can use your overreaction, how he wants to redeem and resurrect your triggers. Because I'm telling you, friend, that your triggers and your overreaction and your emotional response, when you submit them to the authority of Christ, when you put them under the lordship of Christ, and when you commit to growing in your own discipleship, and you wake up fighting every day for your own discipleship to bring those unhealthy thoughts under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, that in those moments and in that that time and in that season as you take your overreaction and your overresponse and your trips and your triggers what God can do is he can use that for your good he can use that for his glory he can use that for the joy of Jesus he can use that for the expansion of the kingdom he can use that for the communication of the gospel he can use that for the souls of mankind God can take 
even us at our worst and our weakest and make those moments redeemable and resurrectable because my friend there is a risen savior and his name is jesus and because jesus has risen from the dead i'm telling you everything in your life and anything in your life and all things in your life are possible if we'll just submit it to the authority of god and let him do what only he can do father we thank you for what may be the greatest psalm we thank you for this rich text that you've given us today to research father maybe there is one who comes in here today that feels alone one who comes in here today who feels isolated like you're hearing everybody else's prayer but not their prayer like you've been there for everybody else but you've not been there for them and they've really just kind of been trudging along trying to see their way but losing faith in the process Lord, I pray that you'd help them to see that you are still God and you are still in control and you are still working and you are refining and you are redeeming and you are resurrecting the very broken things in their life through the power of Christ. And we ask you, Lord, to take our flaws and our falls, take us at our weakness and our worst and somehow bring those about for your good or our good and your glory for the joy of Jesus, for the advancement of the gospel, for the expansion of the kingdom, and for the souls of mankind, would you take our brokenness and redeem it? We surrender our triggers to you. We surrender our overreactions to you. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.